Murder. Do you have anything to say on why you should not die according to the law? Mysteries. A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducket, Marshall, and the occasional have disappeared from the island. Join us at the Hidden Staircase podcast, where every two weeks I will bring you stories and cases you've probably never heard. You can find us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to lock your doors and hold tight to your flashlight. This is an American Crimecast production. Visit us at our new home at accproductions.org. And remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Alright everybody, before we get started, I would like to give some thanks out there. I never have acknowledged my patrons before, and it's high time that I do. And just so you know, I will have a patron episode for you this week. Yes, I know, I'm fucking horrible about that. But yeah, if you donate anything, it doesn't matter if it's a buck or 20 bucks, you get the same episode, and that goes for everything on uh, Podbean as well. That will be a patron episode on Podbean. So first off, I would like to thank Kristen, Mally, Linda, Ellie, Robert, Kathy, the Minds of Madness podcast, Jessica, Casey, Carol, and Belle. Thank you all for donating to my podcast. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you very, very much. And yes, uh, we do have t-shirts now, and I will be sending out those t-shirts to the $20 a month patrons as well. So here within the next week or two, I'll be getting a hold of you for shipping details. So with that being said, I would like to say this again. I said it about a dozen times in part one. And I feel very, very obligated to say it again in part two. I am not here to defame anybody. I am not here to make anybody look better. I'm not here to make anybody look worse. My job as a podcaster is to provide the listener with the most facts and the most details that I can find to where you can form your own opinions. It is not my job to persuade you one way or the other. So with that being said, I am going to bring to light a lot of details about a lot of events surrounding Buford Pusser's life, and that will include his death. Now, like I had said, I had originally, this was supposed to be a one-part episode, but as I started investigating his death, I started realizing that there's a lot of contradiction surrounding some of the events of his life as well. So it turned into a huge rabbit hole. I was supposed to put off this episode like a couple days ago. Uh, that did not happen because if I don't feel comfortable with the information that I have, I'm not going to release an episode. I'm not going to release an episode just for the sake of putting content out there. That is not me. So I do apologize for this episode being a few days late, but I hope you all are satisfied with uh, what I have found and uh, with the details and facts that I am going to provide for you. So with that being said, my name is Justin, this is Mysterious Circumstances, and this is The Death of Buford Pusser, Part 2. Now I have to ask, you indicated that Buford did your family a favor. Oh yeah, Buford did have my family a favor. He killed my Uncle Russ. We had a, Russ Hamilton killed my aunt. I my, see. Uh, Russ married my aunt, and then later on, killing her and he went to prison and he threatened all of her sisters at a 
bunch of sisters that testified in court. Uh, matter of fact, right upstairs from where we are now. Mm-hmm. No, it was in McNair County. And they testified that they, he was the last person to be seen with her. So all the time Russ would get out of prison, he would always threaten them and come through the neighborhood. So they were all fearful of him. So one Christmas, him and Buford got disagreed. And Buford put him to sleep, <laughs> gave him a big Christmas present. <laughs> and the rest of the family, and, uh, too. <laughs> so there's, I, Buford was, like I said, he was legendary. Mm-hmm. A lot of times a person like Bill Morris can take a typewriter and make a legend out of dang near nothing. Was he, in your mind, just another sheriff, another county sheriff? Yeah, he was just another sheriff. I, I, it was funny, and now that we're moonshining today, today's moonshining at the courthouse, but <laughs> Buford had uh, one thing in common among his, dry, among his deputy sheriffs. Mm-hmm. They were all moonshiners. Every, but every sheriff, every deputy sheriff that Buford Pusser had was an ex-moonshiner. Uh, Petey, when uh, Buford got the call to come to the Shamrock, uh, what happened uh, during the ride down there? Well, at that time, we were driving along, and I said, Buford, since we're going down there, you better put your pistol on. He didn't have his pistol on. And, well, he said it might not be a bad idea. He stopped on the side of the road out there and put his pistol on. We went on down, walked into the officer's motel, Use the exact words that she said. What in the hell are y'all doing down here? And uh, I tried to tell her what we was doing down there, that we were looking for this lady's purse. The lady lost her purse in the motel that night. Said, I don't know nothing about no purse. No, I said, there's no car. Said, ain't nobody stole no car. I said, Louise, we're not hunting a damn car. We're hunting a purse. Jim Moffat sitting over there on his couch. I guess he must have smiled. I wasn't looking at Jim. She said, wipe that smile off your face. But, uh. She said, Sheriff, I want to speak to you a minute. So Buford proceeded to uh, follow her out of the office into number one cabin, which was her living quarters. And as he got inside of the door of the number one cabin, she had on a sweater with uh, pockets in it. And she had this little snub nose 38 in there. And uh, she come out with that 38 and said, I'm going to kill you. And as she wheeled with the gun, Buford seen her, and he fell across the bed just as she fired. And then from the looks of it, she had fired at the big part of him, which was his chest. And as he went down, that put his head where his chest would normally have been, and I'd say she missed his head approximately four inches. The bullet went out the window into the post that holds the shed up in front of the office. But as he went down and she fired, he come out with his forty-one Magnum. He fired the first shot. He hit her on the left side of the neck and cut a trench across her neck and shoulder. And it spun her around. If she spun around, she still had the gun in firing position. To fire again, the next shot hit her in the right breast, went come out of her back, and you can stick a doorknob in her back where the bullet come out. She hit the floor, hit a chair, turned the chair over, hit the floor on her back, and she raised the gun up again. The next shot, he caught her in the left jaw, underneath her jawbone, and come out the back of her head carried one of her jaw teeth about 12 inches behind her head, out through her head there. Well, uh, was Louise uh, Hathcock drinking heavily that day? Yes, she had a mixed drink in her hand down this alley. Well, was she drunk? Yes, definitely drunk. Dope or something. She was bad off some way. I've never heard anybody 
man or woman talk any more vulgar than that woman talked to us that morning. How did Buford react uh, after killing Louise Hathcock? When I got to Buford, when I heard the shots, I run to him with my pistol in my hand. You could tell by the looks of his eyes, of course. I don't know whether he was scared or excited or what, but I could see his eyes was red around him a little bit, you know. He told me, he says, catch the back door. Go, and knew there was somebody in the back room because I would heard her talking to him. See. He told me to catch the back door and told Jim Moffat to call the sheriff's office. And I don't know, Jim said he wasn't scared, but I was scared. Why were you scared? Well, knowing the reputation and the kind of characters that hung out at the place, I figured we would have to shoot our way out. And I still say, if that bunch had been there, we would have had to shoot our way out of it. Well, what kind of person was Louise Hathcock? Well, I just soon uh, I'd compare with Al Capone. Just soon had Al Capone gun and form as Louise Hathcock. He became famous by numerous books, magazine and newspaper articles. A movie, Walking Tall, that everybody knows about, said that Sheriff Pusher became a local hero of fighting organized crime on the Mississippi and Tennessee state line. Some people were concerned about his heavy-handed tactics as being cheered. Others believe that if you're fighting cold-blooded killers, uh, politically correct tactics just is not feasible. However, Sheriff Pusser believed in fighting fire with fire, which meant that it's a dangerous situation when you do that, but it seems to work, and at least it did in his case. Podcast is part of the Bombpod Media Network. Hey everyone, before we do get rolling on this episode, on April 14th, uh, me, Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories, and Rob and Nick from Brohio Podcast will all be doing a live show together. Uh, like I said, that'll be in Cincinnati, Ohio. We are not sure on the venue yet, but as soon as we figure it out, you guys will definitely be hearing about it. So set your calendars, show up, hang out, and uh, listen to a live show with, with me and Hillbilly Horror Stories and Brohio. Now I, I suppose let's go ahead and get on with this episode. Um, one of the first incidents that we are going to touch base on is the shooting at the Plantation Club in December of 1959. I did mention this a little bit uh, in, um, part one. I didn't touch too much into it. I gave you a few details, so let's go ahead and, and hear what supposedly happens. Now, you'll hear W.O. Hathcock come up a little bit further in the episode and all that good stuff. So this does play a factor in some of the backstory. Now, W.O. Hathcock owns the Plantation Club. It is on the Mississippi side of the state line. Now, before Pusser became sheriff in December of 59, which is at around the same time that he married uh, his wife, him and two other men 
come into the club at about 3 a.m. The two other men with him are supposedly Jerry Wright and Marvin King Jr. Apparently everybody starts leaving and at about 5 a.m. Pusser tells W.O. Hathcock that he wants to buy a little 25 caliber automatic handgun. So W.O. says he'll take 25 bucks for it. Buford walks a few steps from the bar and he begins talking to Marvin King who was standing behind W.O. This apparently is what happens. Pusser supposedly hits W.O. over the head with a heavy object, knocking him unconscious. Uh, then they allegedly gagged him with Pusser's ha- handkerchief, uh, robbed him, stole the metal money box containing about 1300 bucks. Now, all this stems from a couple years earlier when Pusser was in there, and what supposedly happened was Pusser got screwed out of a bunch of money while he was gambling, and um, this was pretty much revenge for that. He says he received 192 stitches to his head and face. Now, this is not backed up with any kind of evidence, really. There's no police report. There's no hospital records. There's no news article. There's absolutely nothing. And judging from Buford's wrestling pictures from a couple years after that, he has no visible scars whatsoever. And, I mean, he's up there in some, like, little skinny boxer briefs and shit like that. So, I mean, you can pretty much see all of his body, uh, including in his, his head and face area. So, there was nothing there. This attack at the Plantation Club in 59 was retaliation for that. Now, um, his wife was in the living quarters. She ends up coming out because she hears him, you know, he's hurting real bad or whatever. Now, he was rushed to the hospital in Corinth. And he was in recovery for about a little over three weeks. Now, there is police documentation. There is hospital records. There is an article. There's a police report. There's pretty much everything. This is never brought up because Pusser supposedly, him and his two buddies, as they were driving to Mississippi, supposedly they had a friend of theirs uh, at a factory they were working at in Joliet, Illinois, um, clock them in for work, um, which provided them with a solid alibi. So nothing ever, you know, came about it. They had an alibi. They technically were at work. I mean, obviously you're going to hear two different sides to the story, obviously, but like I said, there is police reports for one. There is hospital records for one and there are no records for the other. Now, as for people saying that, you know, they had a buddy at the factory in Juliet, Illinois, clock them in uh, while they were on their way to Mississippi. I mean, you would fucking think that by now somebody would have came forward and actually said, yeah, I'm the guy who provided them with the alibi, even if it's on their fucking deathbed or something like that. Or the fact that if they actually weren't at work, you know, maybe their boss would have fucking said, yeah, like these dudes weren't here. I didn't see them all fucking day. None of that actually happened either. So that's the limited information I do have on those two separate incidents. Um, I mean, if you tie one and one together, it does make sense. But the whole alibi theory um, about a coworker clocking them in as they were driving down to, you know, Mississippi, I 
I'm not 100% sure I buy it, but I wasn't there, so it might have happened. So I suppose moving forward a little bit, we're going to touch on Louise Hathcock shooting quite a bit here. All right, a little bit of background on Louise Hathcock. She was married to a guy named Jack Hathcock who was murdered. She is suspected in that murder. Um, she supposedly had him murdered by Carl Toehead White. And in return, she was going to give him uh, one of the motels or clubs that they did own, which they owned the Shamrock and the Iris. Now, the Shamrock is the main one we're going to concentrate on. It was the place where people could go gamble, get some illegal liquor, and uh, there was prostitution and sometimes murder involved at these places, a lot of robbery as well. Um, to put it into perspective, it was kind of like the wild fucking west. The National Guard had to kick the state line and the Dixie Mafia out of uh, Phoenix City right there and that's when they ended up moving to the state line right around the Mississippi Tennessee state line and they started running their operations there now the Dixie Mafia or the state line mob uh, is said to have started right around in the 40s from gangsters from Chicago coming down and that being their safe haven to have you know fun and pretty much do whatever they wanted without the eye of like feds who were always hanging around them in Chicago and shit. Now they were pretty loosely organized. Pretty much how it worked is the person with the most money is the one who was in control. And that's pretty much how it worked. There was no real hierarchy. So it was pretty much every man for himself out there. What happens is... Pusser gets a call one day, and it's a young couple from Illinois who were either passing through or staying at the motel or whatever, and they say that Louise Hathcock robbed them and threatened their lives, so they call the cops. Now, as you heard Petey Punk at, in the beginning, uh, he was describing the chain of events, events that went down. So Pusser, Chief Deputy Jim Moffat, and uh, Deputy Petey Plunk show up, and uh, they hit the motel office. Louise is waiting for them at the door, and, you know, Pusser says, we got a warrant for you stealing this lady's pocketbook and for uh, illegal alcohol. They go into cabin one, which was her living quarters, and I've heard two various reports, one of which says that the door was closed behind them. Now, according to Pusser, here is what happened but first i'm going to give you a layout of the room okay now when you initially walk into the room you want to turn right 90 degrees and there's a bed the head of that bed is on the right the foot of the bed is on the left obviously that would be going long ways on the other side of that bed is a couple feet worth of blank area and then there is a window this window is very important now, as you're standing at the door and turn to your left, there is the bathroom, and then straight in front of you is a dresser. Now, what they say happened on Pusser's side is that they walk in, she pulls out a snub-nosed 38 from her sweater, she takes one shot at him. This did miss him, it missed his head by about four inches because he fell back onto the bed. Now, the bullet hits the bottom part of the window pane and ricochets upward a little bit and sticks into a post outside that is holding up the awning. 
So the bullet did remain there until P.D. Plunk uh, pulled it out for evidence purposes. He says that as he falls backward onto the bed, she continues to come at him. She takes another shot and the gun jams. So he pulled his gun at about the same time after she fired the first shot and took three shots at her with a forty-one caliber Magnum pistol. These three shots do hit her. The order that he says that they hit her, the first one hits her in the shoulder. The second one hits her in the torso, exiting her back. The shoulder one also exited her back. And then the third shot goes into the left side of her jawline right underneath by her neck and exits out the back of the skull. There were no eyewitnesses technically, but there is a man by the name of Howard Carroll who swears up and down that he heard the 41 Magnum revolver that Buford carried. He says that he heard that fire first before he heard the single pop of the 38. Now, those are two very distinctly different gun noises. Um, you can definitely tell a difference when you shoot a 38 sound-wise compared to a 41 Magnum. Now, after evidence was collected, the 38 contained five rounds, one of which was fired. There was also another round right after the shot that was fired that you could see the hammer was snapped on so the hammer did engage on this bullet but the round did not fire so judging by evidence that part of the story is definitely true another fact that you want to keep in the back of your mind howard carroll i'm not a hundred percent sure because i don't know the fucking guy and i haven't talked to anybody who does know the guy but on a lot of forums that i read from people who do know him said that he was pretty much the town drunk and there's a big chance that he was possibly intoxicated at this time. So any kind of testimony he had probably wouldn't have been taken seriously. So you you should know that. Now here we get to Jerry Francisco's autopsy report. Now this is where a lot of contradiction comes into play because this autopsy report is not even remotely close to matching the story. I mean, it could be, but it depends how you look at it. Now, the autopsy report shows that the two wounds from the back were not exit wounds. It shows that they were entry wounds. It shows there's one in between her neck and shoulder right there on the back side. There's an entry wound which, which exits the front of her shoulder right there. There's also another entry wound. Uh, if you take your left hand behind your back, kind of curl it up, it's right underneath your shoulder blade right there. That would be one of the entry wounds, and that exit wound would be under Louise Hathcock's right breast. Now, as you heard P.D. Plunk, he swears up and down. You could fit a doorknob and the exit wounds on her back. Obviously, I don't 100% believe that, and judging by this autopsy report, that is not fucking true. So you have to keep that in mind. And then the third shot would be, like I had stated, the entry wound going under the left part of her jaw, 
right above the neck, underneath the jawline, and exiting out square in the back of her head. Now, according to P.D. Plunk, she did not die. It took her three or four minutes to die. According to the autopsy report, there's no way. Um, Jerry Francisco said that as soon as the bullet went through her head, death would have been instantaneous. So... It all depends on who you want to believe there because one person was there, the other person was not, but the other person that wasn't there is a trained medical doctor. Now, I tried digging up anything I could on Jerry Francisco to kind of, uh, you know, validate, you know, his career and all this shit, and uh, I really couldn't find anything. So apparently he had not been in any trouble or had any bad autopsies or anything like that. So that is, you know, a pretty credible source. Now, there's a lot of uh, keyboard warriors out there on YouTube. There's also a Facebook page ran by the same guy who makes all these fucking YouTube videos. I'm not going to say his fucking name because he doesn't deserve to have his name said. Now, there is, like I said, he runs a Facebook page that is literally dedicated to quote-unquote telling the truth. Alright, this guy's fucking opinion is strictly just that, opinion. He has a bunch of hearsay and a bunch of stories, and the only piece of evidence that this guy fucking has is the evidence I'm going to present to you on the ambush of Pauline, which was Pusser's wife. Also, the Louise Hathcock autopsy. Okay, now I'm not going to lie. This shit's fucking weird. But don't promote yourself as wanting to get the truth out and advertise yourself as a person of law enforcement when your opinion is biased as fuck. I have never seen an opinion more biased in my life for somebody who says all they want to do is get the truth out because he doesn't care about the truth. He only cares about making Buford Pusser look bad, but he does have some evidence, okay? Now, with this autopsy report, it does clearly show the entry wounds were on the back, which would not help a self-defense case, obviously, okay? But it also shows that one of the entries was facing him. Now, obviously, this does not match his order of shots that he himself stated, that him being Buford Pusser. And so, I mean, you have to take that into consideration, now, I will say this, you know, judging by the autopsy report, it does look bad, okay? But let's put yourself in this situation for one minute. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you can answer yes or no to yourself to these questions. The first one being, have you ever been fucking drunk? While you were drunk, have you ever lost coordination? Have your reflexes been affected by being drunk? Has your vision and your motor skills been affected by being drunk if you've ever been drunk then you answered yes to every single one of them questions and if you answered no to whether or not you've ever been drunk you're probably a fucking liar all right so let's put this into perspective louise hathcock's blood and urine level uh for alcohol was 0.23 almost three times the legal limit it is stated by everybody there that she was drinking and she was drunk and she was definitely messed up now, according to the people who are all about Buford Pusser looking bad, are saying that the the facts don't match up with what the story says. So they're saying that Buford Pusser at some point was on the ground. 
Here's why. Because the trajectory of the shot that Louise Hathcock supposedly shot was going at an upward angle. Now, what they are saying is that Louise Hathcock was murdered in cold blood, shot twice in the back, and if when she spun around, she was shot up underneath the head. They're saying that after she died, Buford Pusser kneeled down to have fired one single shot out the window. Here's why I don't think this is true. Because the succession of shots were so close together that most people, except for the one guy who's supposedly a town drunk, couldn't tell them apart because they were fired so close together. So how in this one second span is he going to crouch down, fire a shot out of her 38 after he unloads on her? That just doesn't make sense, okay? It truly, truly doesn't. What I could see happening is him not caring about what the fuck he's firing at as he's falling backward onto a bed, a drunk, aggressive woman with fucked up motor skills fed on aggression because, I mean, let's be honest, nobody around here fucking liked Buford Pusser, especially the state liners and the Dixie Mafia. They fucking hated him. Is it a good possibility that, that it did happen the way Pusser said? Can I ask you another question? Why would he need to kill Louise Hathcock in this situation? It does not make fucking sense. She had to have pulled a gun. She had to have fired one shot. The other shot jammed. That's what these people don't fucking tell you. One of the shots in her gun was fired on. That round did not fire. So Buford's story has to be somewhat true. Is it possible that she was shot, spun around, maybe two rounds hit her in the back, and he messed up the order in which his shots hit her? Yeah, I think that's totally plausible. But when it comes down to it, Louise Hathcock, probably not the best person in the world. Her own family says she's no angel. You know what? Buford's family says the same shit about him. He was no angel. But you have to think about what he was dealing with down here. Uh, he was dealing with mob, and like Pete Plunk said in the uh, interview that I played in the audio clips, they all had their pistols out because if the regulars would have been in there that day, then they would have had to shoot their way out of there. That's the kind of fucking people that he was dealing with. So whether this was self-defense or not, whether she got what she deserved her or not, I can't really say. But I will post pictures of all this shit uh, when I do post the episode in the group and on the Facebook page so you can kind of see what I am referring to. Definitely not my decision to make there, but I needed to provide you with all the facts possible, and those are the facts. Another thing that you have to keep in mind is that a lot of these people who accuse Buford Pusser of a lot of things, including the murder of his own wife, which we're about to talk about now, these people, the only evidence that they have are shell casings from the ambush of Pusser's wife and also this autopsy report. If you'll notice, when they state things, they will continuously say, I heard, I believe, in my opinion. That's not facts. That's hearsay. That's your opinion. That's your belief. Alright, moving forward to the death of Buford's wife. 
Now, in the early morning hours of August 12th, 1967, it is supposedly between 4 and 4.30 a.m. that Buford Pusser receives a call about a disturbance on New Hope Road. His wife decides to go with him. Now, according to Buford Pusser, he's riding along uh, New Hope Road, and supposedly there is a car behind New Hope Methodist Church right there that comes up on him. Now, as they are crossing over a bridge, this, what he described as a 1964 to 1965 Cadillac. I've heard several different colors. I've heard blue and black. From what I understand in the police report, Buford Puster said blue. So that's what we're going to go with. This 1964-65 blue Cadillac pulls up to the left side of Buford Pusser's car. Now, this vehicle, someone hangs an M1 carbine rifle out the passenger side window, firing two shots, one of which hits Pauline Pusser. She slumps over forward to the, to the floorboard of the car and is killed instantly. Now, Buford Pusser speeds up. It goes two, three miles down the road, from what I understand, and stops the car. Now, while he's got his door open, and he's somewhat out of the car, still in his seat, he's checking on his wife, this car pulls up again and fires 12 more rounds. One of these rounds hits Buford Pusser right square in the jaw, blows half of his jaw off. That picture will also be in the group. It is very graphic. Now... These shots came from anywhere from 3 to 5 feet away. Now I'm going to give you a couple details of this. On the bridge there were two shell casings found. They were found, I believe, on the road. So that does make sense. I will point out this. If Buford Pusser was going 45 miles an hour like he had stated, by the time he hit the bridge this car would not have been able to catch up with him. They actually recreated this. It would not have been able to happen. Now, when they get further down the road, and this vehicle pulls up beside Pusser with the door open, fires 12 rounds from an M1 carbine rifle, 11 of which miss Buford Pusser. Buford Pusser is six foot six, 250 pounds. From three to five feet away, that is a very small window, all right? That's a very small window for air. So one of these shots hits Pusser in the left side of his jaw, pretty much blowing the side of his jaw off. Like I said, he needed 16 surgeries over the next seven years in order to reconstruct his face properly. Now, the thing about these shell casings was... Pusser was on the right-hand side of the road. I know a lot of you from the foreign countries do drive on the wrong side of the road, but, you know. But he's on the right side of the road, okay? And this car pulls up to his left side, like I said, three to five feet away. Buford Pusser, six foot six, 250 pounds. Only one round hits him in the face, and these shell casings were not found in the middle of the road where they should have, or were they even missing? Because you would think, unless somebody is holding the entire rifle out the window, some of these shell casings are going to remain in the vehicle. This was not the case. All 12 shell casings were found in a small pile on the opposite shoulder 
of the road. So, that right there does not make very much sense. Now, here's a couple theories as to what people think might have happened. A lot of people think that Pauline Pusser was going to leave Buford. Whether this is true or not, I have no idea. I had too much other shit to look into besides this. Don't get me wrong. It would make sense. Now, what she was going to do was expose his corruption and all this and that and basically defame the shit out of him. So he hired an accomplice to meet him on New Hope Road and have his wife fucking murdered. And either that or he did it himself. And then he shot himself in the fucking jaw to make it look like an ambush, to make it look like an attack, something that he didn't do that could not be tied back to him. How much of that I actually believe, I don't know. Because I'm going to tell you straight up, if you are going to fucking make something look like an accident, you're not going to blow half of your jaw off, okay? You're going to shoot yourself in the fucking arm or in the leg or something like that. You're going to be a little bit smarter about it. Now, on the flip side, it is one of the theories is that this person who Buford had to do it um, was a person that he was involved with business-wise because... They say that this person probably got tired of either making payoffs to Buford or something of that nature and then pretty much double-crossed him. Now, I believe it was 2015 is when this rifle was actually found in a body of water. Until 2015, this, this weapon was missing, all right? So that should be noted as well. You can find a, a there's a little bit of information out there on it there's not too much though the only, the most information you'll find is forums and sometimes forums can be very very biased with not the most you know realistic information not the most credible information out there now that is one theory i don't know how i feel about this the evidence obviously the physical evidence is pretty fucked up it does not make sense at all and as a person who is an avid shooter I uh I can tell you right now, uh, a target of that size, me being that close, there's no fucking way you're going to miss unless you're moving. Now, the second part of the ambush, they were not moving. They were still. All the rounds were collected on the opposite shoulder of the road in a little pile. All of them were there. There were none missing. So, that is some of the information on that. Now, where the Hathcocks come into play on this is W.O. Hathcock is brought up quite a bit in this case, and here's why. Pusser named W.O. Hathcock as one of the people involved in his wife's murder. Now, the reason this comes about is because after the plantation club burned down, W.O. Hathcock started refurbishing cars. Those are not just any cars. He started refurbishing Cadillacs. Now, Buford Pusser knew this. Now, when he stated there was a 1965 blue Cadillac or whatever, uh, and then implicated Hathcock, it would totally make sense to any authorities from the outside investigating this. Uh, it should be noted that there were pictures of um, a blue 1965 Cadillac in police and Tennessee Bureau of Investigation files, but that truly does not mean shit because this car was a lead. They have to follow on all leads, so obviously they're going to have pictures of these cars. That should also be stated right there. So I guess with that behind us, personally, 
I'm not exactly sure what to believe there. There's a lot of weird shit going on right there. All right. So moving forward to the next event, I should say, would be Buford Pusser's death himself. Now, traveling in the eastbound lane at anywhere from 98 to about 104 miles an hour, Buford Pusser, for some unknown reason, slams on his brakes. And uh, you can see the track marks in the recreation, which I will also post in the group. These track marks go from the eastbound lane. They cross center line into the westbound lane. They also go off the road into the front of an old Shell oil station. And then they cross another road going north and south where he hits an embankment and is ejected from the car. Now, when sabotage was suggested... As part of this accident, GM was called in. GM went over this wreckage with a fine-tooth comb and could not find any signs of sabotage. A lot of the rumors were that the brake lines were cut. Obviously, with 545 feet worth of skid marks, that's probably not the fucking case, alright? Not trying to sound condescending, but let's have a little bit of common sense here now maybe the brakes locked up yes but that's the one question that i have had in the back of my mind is that if you're going 100 miles an hour unless your brakes lock up why are you going to slam on your brakes for apparently no reason at all yes his blood alcohol level was leaked to the public and it was at a point one three upon time of death that right there for a man who is six foot six, two hundred fifty pounds is not that extensive. That's a couple, two, three beers maybe for a guy his size. That's not going to affect him that bad. Granted, it probably would, but that still doesn't answer the question of why he would slam on his brakes. Now, like I said, GM did go through the wreckage with a fine tooth comb and did not find any reasons of sabotage or any kind of reasoning for any kind of part of the car that might have malfunctioned and caused all his brakes to lock up but if you look at it from this way if you've seen the wreckage which i will post uh, in the comments in the group or you can easily find them online this was a twisted fucking piece of burnt metal Alright, I'm not exactly sure how GM could go through that and find anything personally, let alone if there was a malfunction in the car, do you really think that they're going to fucking admit to it? Probably not, because that would have made them responsible for killing a living legend. So, I suppose, I think I remembered everything. Not a hundred percent sure. But, um, those three instances do put a lot of shit into perspective on some of the narrative behind Buford Pusser, you know, not being such a great guy. But like we've stated, he was not dealing with ordinary people. So, I mean, you got to put that into perspective right there. He had to do what he had to do, and he did have a heavy hand. People even claimed, you know, he was the fucking biggest moonshiner in the fucking county. Basically, him destroying all them stills was him eliminating all the competition. Maybe he was. Maybe he was trying to make a little bit more money. You also have people who literally will come out and say he didn't do anything for the crime rate. There were people scared 
to report to the cops when they would find a fucking body in their field. They didn't want to report to the cops before Pusser was sheriff because they were scared of retaliation. So yes, after he took office, there were a lot more crimes that were called into the cops. So yes, in theory, that would also make it look like the crime rate probably went up a little bit depending on what the call was. So you got to keep that in the back of your mind as well. So whether Pusser was a good man, a bad man, a corrupt cop, a cop that did what he had to do with a heavy hand and took the law into his own hands, we don't know. Whether the shooting of Louise Hathcock was in self-defense or cold-blooded murder, we don't know. There's only two people in this fucking world who know what happened, and those two people are dead. So... I honestly don't have too many opinions here because I'm really 50-50. I'm really torn. The evidence could go either way. Now, the, the ambush shooting, you know, shit is a little bit weird there. That does not make too much sense, and I wish somebody might come forward with a little bit more evidence uh, regarding that, but I don't think that's going to happen. It hasn't happened in 40 years. I'm pretty sure it ain't going to happen now. But I will say this. I suppose I will leave you with a... Uh, Buford Pusser quote before we end this. Now, Pusser did state several times that there was organized crime in McNary County, and there were rumors that there had been a price out on his head. Now, when asked how he could go on with all the threats against his life, Buford Pusser said, I just don't like to quit. When they get you down, they'll keep you down. I just want to stand up and fight.